Our Father, we're thankful again for our so great salvation that we did not earn, we did not deserve it, but it's purely of grace. And we thank you that you initiated the contact between yourself and us, and you pursued it, you provided the blood atonement, provided the indwelling Holy Spirit, the regeneration work of the Spirit, his indwelling, his teaching ministries. And we depend on those tonight as we seek to, once again, return to your word, to the history that you have preserved for our edification. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Tonight we're going to take one further step um, in our study. And in doing this, I want to, to correct one thing on page 20 of the notes. For some uh, obtuse reason, I must have been dreaming when I did it, but there's not 11 tribes that revolted, there were 10. Um, Benjamin stayed with Judah, so we did not actually have 11 depart. So if you just correct that in the notes, um, we'll get that straightened out. Um, tonight, we're going to go one step further into this divided kingdom. Last time, we covered the rejection of the Davidic dynasty. Um, how that dynasty uh, was basically rejected by the ten tribes for good reasons. God was behind that rejection. But that marked uh, a very critical chapter in Old Testament history. Israel has never been the same since. That was a disruption, a revolt, and an utter rejection of, of the Davidic line. And we showed last time uh, geographically what, what that meant. Um, and your Bible, the, the maps in the back of your Bibles, you'll see this, and it's important when you study uh, the Bible from the, of any book written after 930 or B.C. In other words, any book of the Bible that talks about any period of history after Solomon will use the word Israel in a technical way to refer to the orange area. Israel, and that's why you kind of have to keep your wits about you when you read it. Israel can be a man's name. It's an alternate name of Jacob. It can refer to the whole nation or it can refer to the northern kingdom. So you have to look at the context and not just assume you know what the word means. It doesn't come out that way. It doesn't come out that easily. So Israel is a term that has multiple meanings from this point. What we want to do tonight is study a second step that happened. First, we had this political division where a second kingdom of Jews was established. Now we want to study what happened after the second kingdom was established, right away, the foundation of this second kingdom, this north, uh, northern area, ten tribes. So we're going to turn to 1 Kings chapter 11, which is the chapter we studied last time, but this is a continuation of that chapter. Now this represents, this, this, um, this period, this event of history <clears throat> represents 
a marvelous and easy to understand picture of sovereignty and human responsibility. Uh, sometimes we get hung up on this and we emphasize one or the other. The church has historically gone off in tendencies one way or the other. But here you've got a critical biblical example of God prophesying this would take place. When it did take place, he directed it because on the north side, he was the one who said, Jeroboam, I will give the ten tribes to you. So, the man who took over in the north, Jeroboam, the man who stayed, who was the son of David in the south, the grandson of David, Rehoboam, that split was authorized by God. But the means of accomplishing that split were sinful. So this is something we have to watch. God executes his perfect will over, through, around, and in spite of the sin of man. God's plans do not need us. He works in and through us, but he doesn't need us. And these kinds of things show very graphically that he is capable of bringing about his perfect will to the 13th decimal place without human cooperation. He still wins. His plan still executes. So that's one of the illustrations you have of God's attribute of sovereignty. Now, in 1 Kings 11, verse 31, we pick up where we left off last time. And... We want to hear, uh, uh, verse 30, we want to hear, watch what God tells Jeroboam. So, in this northern territory, we have a man by the name of Jeroboam. And actually, Jeroboam is a name that's going to come again, and so the Bible distinguishes two of these guys. So, to keep it straight, although he's a... He's not as important as the first one. We'll call this guy Jeroboam the first. Now, he's going to rule Israel. And this man has been given dominion over the ten tribes. Now, we have to be careful to think what this means. Because whatever God does with this guy, he's got to pull it off so it doesn't eradicate what great covenant. What was the covenant that God made with the South? The Davidic covenant. So however God plays the cards here, if he, if he does it such that he undercuts the Davidic covenant, we've got a problem with the Word of God. And we've got a problem with God's immutability and God's trustworthiness to do that which he has promised. So, we've got quite a historical engineering feat going on here. How God is going to work the marbles so it all holds together. So, the means of addressing kings was always indirect. This is something you want to pick up out of the Old Testament. And here again is, a, is an, a, an illustration among dozens that we'll see on Thursday nights why you have to know something about the Old Testament before you can really appreciate the New. It's never got through to me yet in 35, 40 years as a Christian why in our evangelical circles we start with the New Testament. 
the Holy Spirit did not start with the New Testament. He started with the Old Testament. And we still have missionaries out there making their first translation out of the Gospel of Mark. That's irrelevant. It's a stupid way of doing things. You make your first translation out of creation because that defines who God is. And I don't know how you can say it more clearly, but there's a sequence to Scripture. And when one of those sequences is right here, because whenever a king is addressed, God never talks directly to the king. Well, he does in David's case. And he, but generally speaking, he doesn't, even with David. There's always in between God and the king a prophet or prophets. The kings are always nominated by a prophet. I mean, this has got to be, we hear it in American politics, the kingmakers in the smoke-filled rooms. But in the Old Testament, there were kingmakers, and they were prophets. And they were the ones who uh, announced that God had appointed this guy. And they played critical roles. And this is why when you open the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, who is the leading character at the front end of the Gospels? It is not Jesus. It's another guy. And he is the prophet. Because even the Messiah is brought in by a prophet. This is why in the tribulation prior to the second advent, before Christ returns to the earth, his return to this planet will be heralded by a resurrection of the prophets. The prophetic line will burst forth again, and you will have genuine human prophets, not some people are laughing hyenas somewhere, but these will be the real prophets. And they will be announcing, they will be called onto the historic stage to announce the great event, uh, next great event in history. So here we have an illustration, we, that's why we want to look at the, at the way God works. And, and we're continuing the conversation, verse 31, and he said to Jeroboam, now who's the he? It's Ahijah. So in this case, Ahijah is that prophet who now talks to Jeroboam. God's word comes to the king through a prophet. And it is these prophets who, we believe, compose the Old Testament. In other words, in their spare time, these guys made these books. And you'll notice, and you'll see if you've been reading through Kings with us on Thursday, you'll see a notice that crops up usually after a king's reign. And they'll say, uh, if you want to know more information about the king, are they not written in the book of the Acts of King so-and-so? So the prophets had access to history books and records. So the question we ask as we approach kings, or if you study Chronicles, or you study Samuel, or you study one of the other books, the, the question always should go through your mind of all the thousand things that went on at this period of history, how come the prophets picked these things? Well, obviously, it's because the prophets are doing an analysis. These books are historical analyses of the workings of God. And the people doing these analyses are prophets. And this is why the first history writing in the world was done by believers. And the motive behind this history was 
to see God's trustworthiness mapped out in space and time. That was the motive of history. So now in verse 31, he said to Jeroboam, and we want to watch this because there are certain warnings given here that are going to be violated very shortly. And maybe to, to um, back up a bit and get perspective, let's go to, to the big picture of this period in history. What's going on? Now, last year and last fall, we dealt with these, these events. And I kind of encapsulated, that was the, the, the third part of this framework series, and I capitalized that the disruptive kingdom. And I called it the disruptive kingdom, period, because it was disrupting pagan civilization. And that that's sort of summarizes that whole set of events. Now, this next series of events, which I haven't got the slide yet, took me three weeks to get PowerPoint to work the way I wanted it to work, um, we're going to have the disciplinary kingdom. Whereas in these events, we were looking at the difference between God's plan and the world. Now, in the next series of events, we're coming inside the kingdom to study how God administers the household of faith. And we're going to learn some severe lessons about sanctification. So the theme... In this event, the golden era of Solomon, the division of the kingdom, and the coming events all have to do as a cluster with how God deals with his own. Back here, it was how God separates his people from the world at large. Now, it's going to be how God deals internally to his own kingdom. And the argument, the argument is this. The argument carries forward the argument of the book of Judges. What was the conclusion in the book of Judges some two centuries prior to this? The period of the Judges resulted in social chaos. And the analysis that the prophets gave of that problem was what? Every man did what was right in their own eyes because there was no king. In other words, the, the book of Judges opposes a very popular idea that you get in school. And that what the popular idea that you get in school is democracy is the wave of the future. That the solution to all problems is a vote. You know what the reputation of that is? The Book of Judges. They had freedom then. Didn't have any king. Didn't have any centralized government. And the whole thing unraveled. So, what that period of history tells us is, no, the future is not going to be democratic. When Jesus reigns his kingdom, he's not running it by a vote. Democracy assumes a self-control on the part of the people in it. And if the self-control goes away, democracy will go away. So, the argument of that, that big idea, and what, what you want to learn as a Christian is to watch the world and the big ideas, the 50-ton the, the tanks that are running you over. And here's one of them. Democracy is fragile. It is totally dependent on prior self-government. That goes, democracy goes. And it will always come to a dictatorship. Look at Yugoslavia. So, it's a rule of history. Now, what this is going to argue with Jeroboam, now we're dealing with centralized government. Now, what chapter of the Bible did we go to 
and I said it once, I said it dozens of times, what one chapter was the most eloquent statement in all of Scripture about centralized government and its dangers? And it was given by a prophet. 1 Samuel 8. Politically, an extremely important passage of the Scripture. 1 Samuel 8 refutes the other popular idea that you get in class, and that is the opposite of a democracy, and that is a socialized system of government where every decision is made for you by higher authority or a dictatorship. And some people believe if it's not democracy and that doesn't work, then surely centralized power will work. Well, this is a refutation. What is happening here? Keep your eye on the forest as we go through the trees, because we'll return to this big idea again and again. It's, it's a tremendous idea, and it's utterly in conflict with everything you've learned. Totally conflicts with everything we learn. What we're seeing here is total depravity in centralized government. Before, we saw total depravity in democracy, on the part of the people. The people are sinners, and who else is a sinner? The kings are sinners. So what's the conclusion? We're going to see the conclusion as we progress now in the Old Testament prior to Jesus. We're not going to deal at all with the Gospels. Not going to deal with Jesus Christ. We're going to stay in the Old Testament. You watch how as the events shape up and we have a new class of prophets called the classical prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel. Watch what these guys are doing. Under the hand of God, history is playing out. One by one, God is taking on the big popular ideas of man and showing them, us that they don't work. And after we go through the Old Testament for thousands or two thousand years, then we come to appreciate Jesus Christ. But he can't be appreciated as to who he really is and why God presented Jesus the way he did if we don't have this prior preparation, if we harbor ideas that people really aren't sinners, if we harbor ideas that men of good will can get together, or all we need is a good, powerful leader, as long as we harbor those ideas, we cannot appreciate Jesus Christ. It just doesn't fit. So, that's why now as we proceed, we're going to start... We're going to focus now not so much on the sins of the people, though the sins of the people are here because they go along with it. The emphasis is, has a new note to it. Now the emphasis is on the sin of the leadership inside God's kingdom. Sin inside the kingdom of God. So here's, here's what is told. This is God's will. The prophet comes to Jeroboam, and we always said there's... Two, there's, remember in sanctification, we have the phases of sanctification. One is our position before God. That's what God is going to do for us. That is the things that he has given us at the point of salvation. Regeneration, indwelling, baptizing, sealing uh, of the Holy Spirit. He's given all kinds of things that we'll see in, in Dozens and dozens of things at the point of salvation. This is all positional truth. But the will of God in time, as we march through our Christian life, there's a set of things that he wants that we connote the will of God for us. So the prophet now is giving the will of God for this king. And here he outlines it. Watch how specific the will of God is for this man. 
He said to Jeroboam, verse 31, take for yourself ten pieces. He tore up his coat. Good video, good audio-visual illustration. For thus said the Lord, the God of Israel, I will tear the kingdom out of the hand of Solomon and give you ten tribes. But he will have one tribe, for the sake of my servant David and for the sake of Jerusalem, the city which I have chosen from all the tribes of Israel. Now just look at verse 32 for a moment. Knowing what you already have studied, what promise is, what kind of area of truth is at stake in that first clause of verse 32? What is he referring to? For the sake of my servant David. Because David was such a great, good little boy. Is that what, how we interpret this scripture? David was a good little boy. God feels sorry for David, so David, he pats David and his sons on their back. No, there was something more powerful than that. It was the Davidic covenant. So for the sake of David. So now you've got the Davidic covenant implicit in verse 32. That's 2 Samuel 7. The background for verse 32, part 1. Now, the next clause. And for the sake, or phrase, the, for the sake of Jerusalem, the city which I have chosen. When was Jerusalem chosen? What do we say about David? What did David do in his kingdom that Saul never did? He found a place for the temple of God. David chose Jerusalem. But here's that sovereignty and human responsibility again. I chose Jerusalem. Through David... I chose Jerusalem. So Jerusalem will not change. So what he's telling this king, very critical for what's going to follow now. So let's get the map back out and look at terrain and location. What God is telling this guy is the orange area of Israel is yours. But, he's telling him, there's a little place there that I have chosen that is going to be special. That place. And it's not going to change. I have chosen it, and it is going to change. Jeroboam's going to try to change it. Every king in the northern kingdom is going to try to change it. The Assyrians tried to change it. The Neo-Babylonians tried to change it. The Greeks tried to change it. The Romans tried to change it all the way down to Arafat trying to change it. And nobody is going to change it. God has chosen Jerusalem, period. Even our president isn't going to change it. Because they have forsaken me and have worshipped the Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, Chemosh, the god of Moab, Milcom, the god of the sons of Ammon, they have not walked in my ways, doing what is right in my sight, observing my statue, my house, as his father... David did. Now again, notice verse 33 and its analysis of David. Does this say that David was a perfect person? No, it doesn't. But it says that by and large, David's heart was in the right place. When David got out of fellowship, David knew how to solve his problems. Remember we went through the, uh, how David confessed his sin and, and uh, he was restored? David's, this is David's problem-solving technique, right there. So David was not a man who didn't have problems. Bathsheba could have gone to the press. See? So, 
The point is that David had problems. But David knew how to handle his problems. And he stuck to the, the basic heart and the center of God's will for his ministry. doesn't mean he didn't have consequences. Because one of the things out of this is after restoration, you still have to walk through oftentimes the thick, gooey consequences of all this. And David was a man who was able to walk through the consequences of his own sin and still keep his eyes on the Lord. That's difficult to do. Because you can get very discouraged. The evil one can whisper in your ear that the reason you're having to walk through all this goo is because God really didn't forgive you. When it has nothing to do with the forgiveness of God. Nothing whatsoever. It has to do with certain pedagogical lesson learning things. That is not due to the fact that David wasn't forgiven. So this is how David solved his problems. And we studied the Psalm 57 to show you a snapshot of this king's great problem-solving methods before God. Now that's what's going to plague this guy. So we're talking about a different man in a next generation. He's been given the northern tribe and he's warned... What went wrong, verse 33, is the God's word to him, here's what went wrong with the northern kingdom. Because they forsook me, first and great commandment. Who shall thou love with all thy heart, with all thy mind, with all thy soul? The Lord. And who did they love? They had an ecumenical movement in that day. Let's all get together, have religious discussions. Let's all, you know, we're all equal. Let's keep neutrality going. Now verse 34 he says that I'm not going to do this right away. I'm going to wait till the Solomon's son, which is Rehoboam. And he says, verse 37, here's where we get into the nitty-gritty. 37, 38, and 39. 30, verse 37, I will take you, and you shall reign over whatever you desire, and you shall be king over Israel. And you talk about a blank check. That's a wonderful promise to Jeroboam. Then it will be that if you listen to all that I command you and walk in my ways and do what is right in my sight by observing my statutes and my commandments, as my servant David did, remember we encountered that? What was the messianic model of leadership? David. As my servant David did, then I will be with you and build you an enduring house as I built for David, and I will give Israel to you. Well, what a promise! Now, this is all the potential in this guy's political career. Now, let's, let's look carefully at, at what he's saying here. Where in the first clause do you notice God directing Jeroboam to a certain target? Check that out. You listen to all I command you and walk in my ways. Well, how is he going to do that? Where is he going to find the statutes and the commandments. Back to the Torah. Back to the Old Testament. This book hasn't been written yet. So forget anything we've got in Kings. All he's got that we've talked about in Kings is just this verbal word that came out of a hijack. But he doesn't, in his Bible, have this book. So what does he have in his Bible? We know at least five books, don't we? So that's where the statutes, that was the law. So he was supposed to go back there. So... He says in verse 39, I will afflict the descendants of David for this, but not always. See, that's the election. David's security is forever. One of the things that people, there are some people in the Christian church that deny eternal security. Well, here's a case. 
God is saying, here's a, here's a dynasty, verse 33, that's totally apostate. But I have chosen them and I will work this through historically and that dynasty is eternally secure. Doesn't mean every king was a believer, but the dynasty was eternally secure. Now, we're going to go back to the statutes and commandments in verse 38. Hold the place in 1 Kings 11 and we're going to go back to two particular statutes. So, um, let's first turn to Deuteronomy 17. We're going through it this way because this is the easiest way I've found to connect with how I disobey the Lord. We all are artists at doing it. We just have different brushes and different canvases. So what we're going to do tonight is to show how to disobey the Lord. And it's part of the, you know, not unfamiliar territory for most of us. So let's watch how this happens. We can learn about ourselves. In Deuteronomy 17, toward the end, verse 18. Remember this? We covered this back when the law was given. It shall come about when he, the king, sits on the throne of his kingdom. What shall he do first? I want you to notice some details here because they're going to come up tonight. And it's just a little small detail here. But I want you to look very, very carefully at verse 18. He is going to write for himself a copy of the law on a scroll in whose presence? The Levitical priesthood. Who were the custodians of the Word of God? The Levitical priesthood, the authorized priesthood. That was one of their jobs to teach the Bible to the population of Israel. The priests were the Bible teachers of their time. They were the guys that had the copies of the Torah and they were the ones who made the copies of it and distributed the copies of it and taught people how to read it. And it shall be with him that he shall read it all the days of his life that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by carefully observing all the words of this law and the statutes. That his heart may not be lifted up above his countrymen that he may not turn aside from the commandment to the right or to the left in order that he and his sons may continue long in his kingdom. Now it's quite clear who is the ultimate king. Jehovah is ultimate king. These are the under kings, so to speak. The underlords with the overlord. And the overlord commands the underlords to follow his policies. These are kingdom policies. So right here you have a central issue. You don't have to go and read 1,500 books on how to be king in Israel or seven secrets of kingship. What you have to do is go back to the scriptures and go through it all the days of your life. Quite simple. That's what happened. And the method was to go to the authorized Bible teachers who were the Levitical priests. Just keep that in mind. Now, what in particular commandments figured in this guy's career? So now I want to take you to two more parts in Deuteronomy. Uh, this is just the introduction to Deuteronomy. This is the technique. Now we're going to look at two areas of the will of God for Jeroboam. First, turn back to this previous chapter, six, chapter 16, verse 16. And here we have one of the policies of the great king. King Yahweh, or King Jehovah, the Lord, wants his nation, whether it's in two pieces, ten pieces, or one piece, he wants the following thing to take place. 
how many times a year is the entire national population called together? You notice? It shall be... He goes describing these, these priests, the, the feasts. Three times a year, all your males shall appear before the Lord your God in the place which he chooses. Okay? That was back when the law was written, the place he chooses. What new information has Ahijah just got through telling Jeroboam? Remember we said, look at the fine print. What did he say? The place was the city of Jerusalem. So now we add in, because now we have more information than verse 16, because we've had centuries go by since verse 16 was written, the place which the Lord has chosen now is Jerusalem. So there should be no ambiguity about what's going on here. It doesn't matter how many pieces the king is in. That, that's not the issue. The issue is there's to be one and one place alone that is the place where we meet God. And that's the temple. Okay? Maybe two kingdoms, one temple. Two kingdoms with two different kings, but one faith. There's no, no, no word here about two places that God is going to choose. One place God is going to choose. Now let's go back to chapter 12 of Deuteronomy to pick up some more information that Jeroboam ought to have in his little policy briefing brochure. Deuteronomy chapter 12, verses 5 and following. In chapter, five, uh, chapter 12, verse 5, you shall seek the Lord the place which the Lord your God shall choose from all your tribes, Jerusalem, to establish his name there. And you, there you shall come. You shall bring your burnt offerings. And we go on and on and on. You shall rejoice between the Lord... Uh, when you cross the Jordan, the land which he gives you, verse 10, then it shall come to pass that he will play out. Verse 12. Verse 12 shows you, by the way, that the Hebrew idea of worship was a lot more relaxed than our concept of worship. I mean, sometimes we Christians get all spooky about this. You know, cathedral and organs and so on. Verse 12, look at what they did. And you shall rejoice before the Lord your God, you and your sons and daughters, your male and female servants, the Levite is within your gates since he has no portion of inheritance with you. Be careful you do not offer your burnt offerings in every place you see, but the place which the Lord chooses out of your tribes. And it was, it was almost like a party. Now, you know, I mean, within limits. People enjoyed. This was to be an opportunity of enjoying the Lord. Not, you know, being sad about it. Okay, now let's come back and see what happened. First Kings 11. Now, verse, uh, we, we go on and, and the, the prophet summarizes. Uh, Solomon tried to kill him because he realized this, this was going to happen. We already have studied that in the past. Now we want to come to that. The, by the way, verse 41 in 1 Kings 11, there's one of those notices I showed you. Uh, I want to show you because you'll see that again and again. Now, the rest of the Acts of Solomon, whatever he did, are they not written in the book of the Acts of Solomon? See, there's all the lost books of the Bible. We don't know where those books went. They were available at one time. But the prophets kept this and this only out because they had a point they wanted to make with us. Now we come to 12. We, we went through 12 last time. We went to the stupid thing that Rehoboam did. He caused the rupture of the kingdom. 
Now we come down toward the end of that chapter and we come down to verse 25. Let's return to the map and we want to start looking at places. 12, verse 25, Jeroboam built Shechem. Now the kingdom's ruptured. He built Shechem in the hill country of Ephraim and lived there. So the king is ruling from where I have the pen on the map. That's where the northern kingdom palace is. Where is the southern kingdom's palace? Right here. A bicycle ride away. They're not that far apart in miles. Now, this is going to cause a little problem here shortly. Jeroboam said in his heart, now look at this, first act as king. What has he just been told? Who's going to give him the kingdom? Lord's going to give him the kingdom. Now, does this sound familiar? It does to me. Now the kingdom will return to the house. He's worrying. So here's his first problem. He's worrying that he's going to lose it. He's worried that there's going to be defection from his domain. When he has just been told God is going to protect you. God offered him a kingdom like David. And what did God say? What was the one thing God asked Jeroboam to do? Just follow my policies. It's all you've got to do. I've already written them out. Just follow what I told you to do. So here's what he sets out to do. The kingdom will return to the house of David if this people go up to offer sacrifices in the house of the Lord at Jerusalem. Then the heart of this people will return to their Lord, to Rehoboam, king of Judah, and they will kill me and return to Rehoboam, the king of Judah. Well, that's cute. Now, here he has got a problem. Watch the way these guys try to solve their problems and learn from this. It's not the problem-solving of David, is it? It's the problem-solving of the flesh. Because here he is... And what is he worried about? What does the Torah require of every male? Three times a year, where do they have to go? To Jerusalem. But who is at Jerusalem? Whose palace is at Jerusalem besides God's temple? Rehoboam. Where is this guy's palace? His palace can't be in Jer Jerusalem because Jerusalem is the southern kingdom. It's got to be in the north. So, he's worried that as these people go down there, they're going to mix, they're going to intermingle, they're going to say, gee, Jerusalem's a great place, look at this temple, look at all the gold, this is where we rejoice in the Lord. And you know, the north, we just don't like living up there anymore. So now he's worried about defection due to what? People enjoying the Lord. So now we have a conflict between this guy's sin of considering his own personal security and people worshiping the Lord. So he's going to deal with this. He's got a plan. Here's how he's going to solve his problems, he thinks. Verse 28. The king consulted. There's always consultants. He had his own beltway. In the Department of Defense, we always refer to the beltway bandits. These are the contractors inside the beltway that sell all kinds of gizmos to the government. Some work and some don't. But they all cost money. So he consulted, and he made two golden calves, and he said to them, It is too much for you to go up Jerusalem. Behold your gods, O Israel, that brought you up from the land of Egypt. What a brilliant solution. Now this guy's really cooking. He must have had some professional consultants. These guys, he probably paid them a hundred bucks an hour to come up with this problem. Now as you read verse 28, does that ring a bell? without cheating and looking at the marginal references. 
does that ring a bell about somebody else in Jewish history who at a certain place only days after the Ten Commandments was given we were partying down at the bottom of Mount Sinai and a certain priest rose up by the name of Aaron and exactly said the same thing. Cross-reference, Exodus 32, verses 2 through 4. We studied that. Remember, I showed you the picture when I was there at Mount Sinai. I showed you the little mound of dirt. Real impressive. I mean, there's God's mountain and here's this little mound of dirt. It looks like something out of the, you know, the place up here along the river. Um, so, here he repeats... Aaron's error. Now, we, we can't get into this guy's head. But he's obviously, as a Jew, he remembers parts of their tradition. Now, where did Jeroboam go for years after Solomon tried to assassinate him? He took off, remember? And between the time that Solomon found him out and considered him a political danger until Solomon died and he came back from a country called... Egypt. Now, I don't know what it is about Egypt, and scholars have not figured this out. There's a big argument in scholarly circles about what they call zoomorphic imagery, or these calves. I was going to bring one to you. I found in Israel, it was in a, in a tell. And uh, it was just, a, it's a small little bull um, made out, it's a little model. And these people had them in their houses. The Jewish people had these things in their houses. So, these golden, they weren't golden calves, they're golden bulls, actually. They're not little cattle, they're big cattle. The idea there being power and fertility. The bull was necessary for breeding stock to do what? For their farms. What was the economic benefits? See, there's all kinds of economic power, um, pro, uh, reproduction kind of things involved in the zoomorphic imagery, but what does the second commandment say? You shall not make any graven image like me. So, they conjure up this image of God. The claim in verse 28 is that this is the God that brought them out of Israel. You'll notice most translations translate it God's, plural, O Israel. The reason they do that is because in the Hebrew text, it's the Hebrew plural, Elohim. And there's a debate here whether that word, Elohim, is used for the proper name of God or whether it's used as just God's. And this is the way it looks. Elohim, and this I am, is the Jewish plural. So, God, usually the convention of translators is when you see that in your text, G-O-D, that's the translation into English of this word, Elohim. Lord is a translation of something else, but that's generally the translator's rule to can do that consistently. So we have then him saying that these bulls, this image, is Elohim who saved you. And he, he's, he's following Aaronic tradition. Verse 29 says, he also set up two places. So let's go back and look at the map a moment and find where these two places are.
and there is Dan. Any idea why he picked those two? What does it look like he's done here? What did the Beltway Bandit consultants suggest this for? He's bracketed his kingdom. Because anybody moving toward the northern and southern border is going to penetrate the area where he's going to have his religious worship. So basically what he's done, he thinks, is he has captured the people. They can't head south. And there's no excuse to head south because this side of the border, we've got our sanctuary. You don't go across the border to the other one. You go to mine. And similarly, heading north. He probably felt guilty because he deliberately had to do Bethel. Bethel was close and it prevented people from crossing the border. And then, of course, he had all these people living up here and they had to go to some place, so he had to have another one up there. So he made these two, two, two places. Now, as you um, can imagine, this violates a few scriptures, right? What do we just find out about Deuteronomy? First of all, he was supposed to consult who? Every day of his life? Bellway bandits or the Word of God? So right away, he consulted. But in verse 20, he's not consulting the Word of God. He's consulting the Word of men. So there's number one. Watch how sin operates. The, that's, that's the whole lesson of this, to study our own sin and see how insidious it works. It starts out by preferring the Word of man over the Word of God. Then it says, after he consults, He's going to reimagine who and what God is. Isn't that what sin always does? It recreates a picture of God in our heads, in our hearts, that replaces the picture of God that we get from the Scriptures. Then the next thing happens is that we start acting this out and putting these policies into place. Verse 30 is the prophetic analysis of the results. And this thing became a sin... For the people went to worship before the one as far as Dan. And he made houses and high places. Now look at what else he did. Notice what is wrong in verse 31. What's he done here? Who did we say was supposed to be the authorized teachers of the Word of God? Levites. Who is it he's putting out of business? The Levites. Why do you suppose he's putting them out of business? What would they be teaching with regard to where people worship? Oh, yeah. So you've got to knock off the Bible teaching. got to replace it with gimmicks, you see. Because if you allow too much of the Word of God to be taught, people are going to get right with the Lord. And this is threatening. This, this undermines security here. can't have that. So verse 32 is the next step. Now what is he doing? He instituted a feast in the eighth month and the fifteenth day of the month, like the feast which is in Judah. He went up to the altar, thus he did in Bethel, sacrificing the calves which he had made, and he stationed in Bethel the, the priests of the high places which he had made. Then he went up to the altar, which is made in Bethel on the fifteenth day, even the month, and had devised in his own heart. Look at that clause. Just look at that clause. See how the prophetic writings analyze this guy? They cut right to the Word of God is living and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, and it cuts right to our hearts. And what does it say? He devised it in his own heart. Autonomy. The autonomous spirit 
I am the criteria of right and wrong, the knowledge of good and evil. And he instituted a feast for the sons of Israel, and he went up to the altar to burn incense. Now, who was supposed to go to the altar under the Mosaic Codes? The high priest. So now this guy, let's enumerate what's happened. Here's sin outplaying. Verse 28, he departs from the Word of God. Verse 28, he recreates the whole nature of God, redefines the attributes of God, redefines God. The next thing he does is he incarnates this belief system into a physical worship service, into a religious organization. He creates a counterfeit religion. In verse 32, he rewrites the Israelite calendar. And in verse 33, he has like, he pretends he's David, I guess, and he goes in and he tries to assume the role of the king, priest, messianic king. You know, I mean, this guy really got some consulting done here. This was a plan. What I want you to turn to now on page 24 of the notes is there's a series of references there. Um, can I borrow yours a minute? I, the new ones that were just passed out, I don't have. Thanks. Um, I won't go through these to read them, but on page 24, the, second, the first full paragraph, you see where I listed all those verses? Let's go to 1 Kings 14, 16 for the first reference. and You can chase the rest of them down. But I want you to see this. This is a refrain. Look at how many times this same refrain is repeated in the Old Testament. 1 Kings 14.16 He will give up Israel on account of the sins of Jeroboam, which he committed, with which he has made Israel to sin. And now let's just, so you see this, turn to 15, verse 30. Chapter 15, verse 30. Next verse in the sequence. And because of the sins of Jeroboam, which he sinned, which he made Israel to sin because of his provocation, and you can go through all those verses, it's the same thing over and over, the sins of Jeroboam, the sins of Jeroboam, the sins of Jeroboam, the sins of Jeroboam. Why do the prophets keep on attacking this centuries later? Because the fallout was that serious. The entire northern kingdom came up with a doctrine. And here's the ultimate doctrine. God's doctrine was two kingdoms and one faith. And Jeroboam turned it into two kingdoms and two faiths with two gods, two sets of laws, and two places to worship. Now let's bring this up closer to the 20th century. Can anybody observe something that we've done here tonight? Let's imagine yourself living back in those days. But kind of think in terms of the ideas in our world today. Are we so very far from the government regulating religion? Let's think about that one. Does the government have the right to regulate religion? Is that what our forefathers believed when they left Europe? What was the problem in Europe? Governments were regulating religion. And so, in a, in a, in a hierarchy of power, 
and, and th- th- we want to study this because uh, we've got to think about it and pray about it because I believe this is going to be the crux in the next five years that we as Christians are going to face. This is the hot issue. And the issue is going to be, do we follow the Word of God even if it addresses homosexuality in a certain way versus civil law? Now, what we study tonight is an example of the exaltation of civil law over and above the Word of God. And it is clearly identified in the Scripture as a sin, and as a so sin, so serious, because it structurally warps society. It structurally warps society, and its consequences endure for generation after generation after generation. So we have to beware of what Samuel said. Remember I went back and I, I said 1 Samuel 8. 1 Samuel 8, key political passage in Scripture. Why? Because now you're starting to see it play out. In 1 Samuel 8, Samuel got up and said that you're going to be sorry the day you ever had centralized government because it's going to go rotten. And when it goes rotten, because man is the head of it, man is depraved, you have men with enormous power And they are depraved men with enormous power. And they're insecure men with enormous power. See, because somebody's powerful doesn't mean they feel secure. Jeroboam had all the assets going for him, but he didn't feel secure. So he sought a human gimmick solution to his perceived insecurity. Did he make the northern kingdom secure, by the way? Was the effect of these policies enhanced security? No, because in 721, they're going to be erased from history. Gone. Northern King never comes back. They're the Ten Lost Tribes. Still known as the Ten Lost Tribes. So, he didn't solve his security problem by his own gimmicks. Now, I asked you last time if you would look ahead and try to fathom what is going on in this strange set of events in 1 Kings 13. And we won't read the whole thing in fact, we won't read any of it, but I'll just point to certain details in it. So those of you who read this and were wondering, why is this strange thing going on? What is going on with this prophet and the other prophet and so on? The first prophet comes in verses 2 and 3 to the northern kingdom. He comes up out of the south with a message. And remember what we said, observe the convention. How does the word of God come to the king? Two ways. It comes through the Torah, as taught by the priests, and it comes through the prophets. See the three offices working together? Prophet, priest, and king. So the prophets and the priests are to input policy to the king. So here comes a policy statement. And in verses 3 and 4, the old man from the south brings this message from God. And he says, your kingdom is done. You are finished. You have violated the fundamental policies of Scripture, and the great king has just fired you. You're done. Your career is over. Your kingdom is over. So naturally, he gets angry about that. And in verse 4 and 5, he tries to attack the guy, and the guy, the Lord protects the prophet. 
And the man, the, the prophet, has been given this commission not to abide in that northern kingdom. He's to come, do his mission, penetrate the area, drop his bomb, and return. Not supposed to, you know, take a vacation up there. So now comes the second guy, verse 18. And who is this guy, by the way, the second guy? The second guy in this story is also a prophet. Now, here's an interesting key to the story. What has the second prophet been doing all the time Jeroboam has been doing his thing? Obviously, he wasn't involved in the consulting. So, whatever the second guy was, he wasn't a very active prophet. He, he pretends, in verse 18, he lies and says, I'm a prophet like you, an angel spoke with the Lord, bring him back to your house, and so on. By the way, verse 18 shows you another example of religious deception. And you will have people say this, oh, God spoke to me, and God did this, and God did that, and uh, I saw lights, and I stood in my head, and I cried, and I had this feeling. And they'll, they'll come up with this garbage that doesn't fit Scripture. And yet Christians fall head over heels for this kind of stuff. All the time, it goes on. All you have to do in any evangelical group is say, God spoke to me, and everybody listens. Well, he listened. It was in direct conflict with what? The known word of God. And you can say an angel spoke to you or anything else, it doesn't make any difference. What does Paul say in Galatians? If even I tell you anything other than this gospel, let me be damned. So, he gets a false message, you know what happened. He stays for supper and he gets killed because he, he, the prophet from the south, disobeyed. The prophet on the north, on the other hand, feels sorry. Now, this time he realizes there's some problems here. And he also, if you read the story carefully, he, he himself gets signs of the authentication of this man's sentence of doom against the northern kingdom. And then in verse 31 and 32, the tragic ending to this story he says, when I die, bury me in the grave in which the man of God is buried. Lay, his bones, uh, lay my bones beside his bones. And verse 32 is a profound announcement. For the thing shall surely come to pass which he cried by the word of the Lord against the altar in Bethel and against all the houses of the high places which are in the cities of Samaria. And then, of course, it says Je uh, Jeroboam didn't pay any attention to it. But the point is, by verse 32, the prophets that are left in the northern kingdom, of which the second man is representative, who were silent in the days when sin was going on, they did not speak out to challenge it, they did not impact Jeroboam with the word of God, they did not appeal to the people who followed this idiot, they didn't make the message clear. And the result was that they had to be shocked by somebody outside of their own camp to come in and tell them, this is the message and you should have been delivering this message and you didn't. And now your country's gone. You just had it. So the whole thing falls apart and verse 33 and 34 is a prophetic conclusion to the story. It's the analysis of what's going to happen from the prophetic standpoint. And it says, Jeroboam did not return from his evil way. He made priests of the high places from all among the people. Any who would, he ordained, to be priests of the high places. What is that a slam on? It's attacking the whole Levitical institution. Oh, this guy's a great Democrat. He's going to apply anybody that wants to be. Applications down at Bethel. 
or go north and you can sign up. Free. And this event became sin to the house of Jeroboam, that means the dynasty, even to blot it out and destroy it from the face of the earth. Sad, sad story. But tonight we've seen the second step in this progress of sin. The first step was they rejected the Davidic dynasty. And that was basically the Davidic dynasty's fault. Now they've gone one step further. Now they've got to the point where they're going to overthrow the entire temple apparatus, the Levitical priesthood that goes with it, and the Word of God that goes with that. And in place, and always notice this, sin, when it erases the truth, can't stand the vacuum. Why is that? Because we're made in God's image, and our heart demands something to fill it. So if we kick out God, something else will reside in His place. It always will, it always has, it always shall be. There is always, when there's a defection from Scripture, there won't be no religion. There'll be a false religion rapidly coming in to fill the gap. So that's the tension. Sin creates religion. People may have not thought of that. But sin creates its own religion. And at the heart of sin's false religion is man devising it in his own heart and creating God after his, his image. Father, we thank you for this tragedy tonight. We thank you that we can learn from these events. And we can see how, using history, we can see kind of a backdrop of how we reap what we sow. And may this be a, a sober warning to each one of us that we can lose a heart that longs after you. And when we do this, it becomes a slippery slope. And we find ourselves compromising like that prophet in the north, silent when he should have spoken out, and then seeing the sad state of the result of not speaking out. Father, teach us to know our hearts. Teach us to know your word and what it says to those hearts. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. We'll have a short Q&A after a break for those interested. Yeah, Jeroboam's history is given in the um, first part of 1 Kings 11. Yeah. Oh, I think many... That's right. And some of the, that's the scary part of these stories. And, and Christians react to it. And historically, Christians react to this, these kinds of stories by saying you can lose your salvation. Uh, we had the same discussion with Saul, remember? And um, I think that's because we have this happy image. We, we've grown up to think that every story must have a happy ending. And we kind of get upset, you know, when you go to a movie and it doesn't end in a happy ending and, you know, the lovers never get back together again or something happens. And, and you just feel sad. And you just feel something's wrong with that story. It, it doesn't conclude right. And that's probably because, in one sense, the universal history under God and the universe does end right. And we're born to anticipate that ending. That's why we get dissatisfied when stories don't end right. But on a smaller scale, individually, stories don't end right. And um, I think the message we're getting out of the Old Testament is every believer doesn't cruise into heaven. Um, 
I mean, every believer is saved. I'm not saying that, but cruising to heaven with lots of rewards and everything else. I mean, there it can be a severe loss of rewards. Paul says that, that we can be saved, yet so is by fire. Um, we find in the Corinthian church, uh, believers killed by God, physically, because they m- were messing around. And so, the exit of, from this life by Christians is not always a happy story. And uh, Christians leave debris in history, a lot of debris in history. And what it is, is it's, that's our flesh. And that's a sad, ugly story of what we're made out of, apart from the grace of God. So this is the sobering side, and this is why the Old Testament, I don't think so oftentimes, because it's not taught enough, Christians tend to be very idealistic in the New Testament. I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to tear down wanting the best. That's not my point. My point is that the reality of history is we don't always get our best. And there's some awful, ugly tragedies associated with believers. This is stuff, you know, the sad thing about what we saw tonight is this is the kingdom of God. I mean, God knows what's going on in Tyre and Sidon. We're going to see more of that next week when we get into Ahab. This guy is a real ripper. If you thought Jeroboam was bad, wait till we get to this next clown in the series. So... So he imports. I mean, this guy, he just, he just marries right in to the pagans and officially installs paganism for the official religion. So he just doesn't even... My point tonight was Jeroboam at least call these gods Elohim. Well, that's not going to happen next week. We get even worse. This is God's kingdom. This is his house. This is his nation that he called to be separate from the world. And this is what goes on inside. So... I, I guess what you can see, uh, and as I hinted at early today, this is why you want to watch how the Old Testament answers this. There is an Old Testament answer that starts, it's like a musical piece, and what you've got now is the orchestra and the strings and the brass going away, and then suddenly in the music you begin to hear a throbbing bass and, and this rising crescendo from the bottom. And that's going to happen starting with Isaiah. And that's, why, that's the setup for those prophetic books. But you can't appreciate those, that setup until you go through this mishmash of crud that we have to go through in these chapters. So it'll all come out. And God hasn't answered all this. But what we want to notice is these are written for our edification. And we want to see guys with, with good backgrounds. I mean, if you looked on his resume, you'd never guess this was going to happen. And, and it's not that God made a mistake either, because God is omniscient. He knows what's going to happen. Why did he do this? Well, why did he construct history the way he constructed it? I don't know. I don't know why he picked Jeroboam, but he could have picked maybe somebody else. But there's a malaise that's coming over the whole nation here. So while we focus in on Jeroboam, notice what's happening. That's why that king story that's so queer in, in that 13th chapter what that's a revelation of is the silence of the men who should have been prophesying. Why did they wait? Why did they sit back and do nothing? I mean, uh, you know, Glenn was just telling me about the kids that went down today for the Roe versus Wade thing. And, and that's great because people, at least, they can't say 50 years from now, well, the United States in the 70s and 80s and 90s was on a critical 
path and they made these bad decisions. They uh, demeaned the baby in the womb. Now they're killing the baby out of the womb. Just heard tonight some MIT guys now saying infanticide is not necessarily bad. Um, he's arguing that the girl that had the baby in the prom and dumped her in the toilet bowl and went back to dancing, uh, that she shouldn't be too uh, upset because in our evolutionary development, infanticide played a role in the survival of the human species. Uh, and when you go back into history, you see women did practice infanticide. They killed the unwanted babies, got rid of them, saved a lot of trouble, and went on. And so once you start with life not valuable in the womb, then obviously, as Mother Teresa pointed out, right in front of a certain individual that leads our country, um, that life outside of the womb isn't going to be respected. So in this case, this is the malaise that's over the whole country. And these kids that went down there today, they're part of the church that's speaking out. Nobody can say back that nobody spoke out. At least, we may not have been listened to, but the church wasn't silent. And that's great. That's all we can do, is we can voice our opposition, we do it in a, in a dignified way, we do it in a forceful and clear way, and if the world goes to hell in a handbasket, then it goes to hell in a handbasket. But at least it's not going to hell in a handbasket, because we didn't open our mouths. We said. So great that the, the people did that. And great they do it every year. And a lot of other people. The one prophet went did this thing, and I think that he was probably being very sensitive to this the voice of the Lord, and literally he went up and did something very great to confront a king who was thoroughly impossible. He's going back to do that the way he was supposed to, and he gets what he could perceive as a change in plans from God. Yes. Uh, the question, if you didn't hear about it, concerns the 13th chapter of why the guy that gets creamed is the guy that started out godly. And there's a, the, the Old Testament approaches these things in a startling way in that these men were called to depict by the activities in their life certain divine truths. I mean, you have weird things like uh, Ezekiel going around naked. Um, you have um, this idea of cutting up suits and going into sackcloth. And uh, um, Jeremiah in his prison uh, life. God calls these guys to be um, living audiovisual aids to what he's trying to teach. And if you notice, in the Hebrew, it's very forceful. God said, I want you to go north, and I don't want you to stop for anything. And it's a little fine detail in there, but it was quite clear that his commission was to move into the enemy territory, do his mission, and come home. Period. Well, all the while he was in there, he was on enemy ground from the standpoint of his mission. 
And yes, I agree with you. The guy probably was very personally sensitive. I mean, these people weren't automatons. They had their own human emotions. And many of the men who, who studied that chapter point out that even though that second guy lied and deceived, he maybe deceives in the sense that he wanted so bad to be near this man, this prophet. He wanted him to come because he, there was a cry in his heart, the second guy's heart, to be like the first one. Because the second guy was a fellow who, who just obviously had compromised. Because here you have this prophet, he's by himself, and the kingdom's gone apostate, and he's just kind of crawling out of the woodwork because this other guy came in into his life. Um, so the death of the first man is sort of a shock to the second guy. Uh, it is part of that sign. There was a sign given to so-and-so. And that's what's so hard in these stories because the poor people on whom some of these signs come, it looks like God has almost like dual standards. And he, he, he really creams guys. And if I cry out loud, what would you do that to him for? I mean, gee. And, and that incites that reaction in our hearts to some of the things. I mean, you're going to see, well, we won't go through the passage, but there's the passage that every unbeliever picks in the Old Testament I've ever heard where Elijah curses the kids. And they come out and they say, baldy, baldy, or something like that, and they're making fun of him. And so he calls a, a lion out after him, or an animal, a wild animal. And uh, see, that's the evil God of the Old Testament. That's the kind of God you Christians worship, you know. And uh, this sort of thing comes out. But you've got to take these stories and realize that whoever put kings together from the human point of view, these were this prophetic school that operates in the background that we'd like to get our hands on. Who was, who was it that put this book together? They picked that story out because it's an action in chapter 11, action in chapter 12, action in chapter 14. Well, why stick this thing in 13? So you have to give credit. The liberals never give credit for this. When you go study higher criticism, they always say, well, this came from another source. And, you know, it's like, uh, like you know, somebody's making a dress and they ran out of material and they just pick up from a scrap heap and just sew the little pieces together. That's the way they think the Old Testament happened, if you listen to any liberal person. Well, we have to give credit that there's a coherence to these books. And if when we're reading from chapter 11 to chapter 12, and then chapter 14 looks like it keeps on going, and chapter 13 looks like it's something totally out of it in the middle, we've got to go back and say, whoa, the guy who wrote this and assembled this book, at least, must have thought that there was a continuity here. So I've got to sit here and give respect due to the overall argument of the book and say, Lord, I don't understand, but chapter 13 has got to have something to do with preparing us for 14. And by that little prophetic announcement at the end of that chapter, you see what he's telling us. Whoever wrote that in there is telling us a message. It was one of the ways that the Word of God was authenticated in the North. And it was very interesting that the Word of God was authenticated through a prophet from the South, and then the prophet in the North who had compromised finally in his last days realized that he had compromised and that the kingdom was going down. So now you get, by the mouth of two witnesses, the first prophet and the second prophet, confirm the doom on the northern kingdom. Now you'll observe something different happen. Now arise these two guys that form very famous stories, the Elijah-Elisha duo. 
and they will rise up and they're going to start doing certain things. But what they're going to do is not what Isaiah, Jeremiah... These prophets all have different places on the team. What we want to study next time is Ahab and the interaction between Ahab, Jezebel on the one hand and Elijah. Elisha has a peculiar ministry and the way to understand his ministry is not like these guys. Those guys that we looked at in 13 were announcers of doom. What Elisha's doing is he's confronting the north in an assault, a massive assault on the false religion of the north. And the, thing, the challenge to you is if you look at the notes that I handed out, you'll see I quote Dr. Leah Broner. Dr. Broner got her PhD in, 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 I think it was in England. She's a, obviously a Christian. One of the most brilliant dissertations that has ever been written on the Book of Kings, written by this lady, South African lady. And she's done one of the most thorough analysis of this book, and she points out certain very interesting things that I want you to look at in the quotes on this notes. And she ties everything that that prophet Elijah does with the false religion that he's attacking. We often think of the drama, that great drama. Try it. Well, I have a projector bulb that I've ordered and it hasn't come in. But what I'm going to try to do if my projector bulb comes in, I'm going to try to bring in my, my uh, slides of Mount Carmel. Because I want you to see where this happened. It's a fantastic place to see where this happened and where this confrontation occurred between Elijah and the 400 prophets. And the violence that was involved in that. I mean, this man incited a mob against the government and killed 400 civil servants of the Northern Kingdom's government. And talk about Ruby Ridge and Waco. Holy mackerel. This is exactly the opposite. This is where an insurrection was begun. And what you, we as believers have to ask, the question is, wait a minute, aren't we supposed to be law-abiding? And here it was the believing godly remnant that were the, the killers. They were the disruptors of society. And we, we have to ask, well, what, what led to that confrontation? So, Elijah and Elisha, be prepared as you now begin to read. Don't function like these two guys. Elijah and Elisha are not announcing the doom on the kingdom so much as they're doing something else. And what you want to understand, what is this that these two guys have done? And then they get through their ministry, and then along come the giants, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel, and those guys. And they do something else. So the prophets in different stages are doing, they're pulling different maneuvers. Although, ultimately, pointing back to the Torah, yes, wait. Uh, thankfully, the Lord probably isn't casting us in these particular roles in the drama that we're going to be dead. But I think the lesson that we learned tonight, it's a sober one, is that once the word, once you perceive the will of God from the scriptures, you better stick with it. And if the Holy Spirit leads you, you have a right before God to pray that the Holy Spirit confirm whatever he's told you through the scriptures. Now, if the church had just followed that, we would have half the garbage wouldn't even be here. But we get ourselves in all kinds of trouble because we always have this arrogance that, number one, the Holy Spirit never taught anybody else except us. 
you know, like for 1900 years, you know, I mean, nothing's been taught down through history, and he's got to teach us the whole thing. See, that's, that's, that's arrogance. Now, it is true that I think at each century, God does teach the church something new. That's the sixth part of this series. God is teaching a progression through the church history. You can observe that. But it never is something apart from Scripture. And the examples we're seeing here, it's clearly contrary to the spoken text. The spoken text has priority. If you want something that will twist your ankles a little bit, Look carefully at the language in Galatians 1. Because this is, a, this is a very powerful statement where Paul says, and this is the answer to Catholicism, Mormonism, and all the other isms that argue that you have to have living prophets continue. The church has its own living prophets. And then they say, well, because we have the living prophets, we got the extra word of God here. You know, we got Revelation 23. You guys stopped at 22. Well, the answer to that in Galatians is, Paul says, if I or an angel from heaven teach you another gospel than that which I've taught you, let him be damned. So what Paul was doing was drawing a curse down upon himself if he departed from his own message. Once that message got out and canonized in Scripture, even Paul couldn't change it. And that's the answer to the Pope. The Pope and the Catholic Church can't change the Scripture once the Scripture is written. They insist that Mother Church gave us the Bible and Mother Church will interpret the Bible. And we insist that Mother Church was the means that gave us the Scripture, but once the Scripture given, Mother Church submits to the Scripture. That's the difference. And that's Mormonism. You notice Mormonism. What does Mormonism's claim? That they have living prophets. That's why they can add these little doctrines. It all follows once you allow a, a prophetic line to exist. Uh, it really doesn't. The prophets would add, if they were godly prophets, they'd pass the test. There's two tests in Scripture, Deuteronomy 13 and 18. And we'll get to that next week because Elijah is going to use those two canon passages because those, the, the, those are actually instructions to courts on how to kill prophets. And before they came to a capital decision in a courtroom proceeding, what, what were the laws of evidence? And Deuteronomy 13 and Deuteronomy 18, because it was a capital offense to be a false prophet. So you had to have rules of evidence given to the jury. Well, what are the rules of evidence given to the jury? They're contained in chapter 13 and 18. There's two tests that the prosecutor would throw to the jury and say, okay, this guy claims to be a false prophet. Now, here are your two tests. Here's how you test him. And we'll go through that. Okay? So, it's not subjective. That's the thing we have to remember. The leading of the Holy Spirit, we all have had these where the Holy Spirit draws your attention to talk to someone and so on. I'm not talking about that because that does, that's not a doctrinal issue. What I'm talking about is when the Holy Spirit spoke to me and, and He really revealed to my heart that, well, you don't want to hear from my depraved heart. You want to hear from the Scriptures. So, we're not talking from our depraved hearts this way. Yes, Debbie. We'll have to conclude. It just, just watching the progress in 1 Kings 12, the first departure was from Scripture because he consulted. Consulted with who? He was given a clear mandate in Deuteronomy 17 about consulting. It couldn't be clearer as to who he's supposed to consult with. 
And you know he had a thing against the Levites because what is he doing right at the end of the passage? He's firing them and hiring any goon off the street. So he cut himself off from Scripture. He cut himself off from the teachers of the Scripture. Second thing that happens is, once that happens, the heart is a vacuum. And if you push God out, something else comes in. And what comes in is a false image of God that you, yourself, have created. That's why it says, this was something that he devised in his own heart. So we fill our hearts with our fleshly imaginations, demonically agitated, of course, and we create these idols. There's a quote I would have in the sixth part of the series where a lady who was a student of church history pointed out to me, Charles, you missed the whole point in church history, and that is if you go back to the church fathers, there's passage after passage in church fathers that claim, this was the view of the first and second century Christians, that every idol out in the, in the, in the world, that, you know, the statues all over Rome and Greece and so on, that those are actually images of demons that appeared to the artist's imagination. That was how the Christians interpreted the artwork. It was directly, demonically induced in their brains. And then from there, you have the outworking. So you have a departure from the authority of Scripture. You have the second step, a readjustment in who God is. And then the third step is the behavioral implications. It starts to work itself out. It may take a century, it may take a lifetime, it may take five years, it may take one month. But sooner or later, that false thing will start acting out behaviorally. And we've seen it act out here in policies. And that's why I gave you all those verses, about 20 verses, keeps talking about sins of Jeroboam, sins of Jeroboam. The prophets won't let us forget that. That was a critical point in Jewish history. People ask, Charles, how do you ever get these events? How do you pick the events? See how I pick them? because they're the events that are keep pointed at in Scripture. That event that we studied here is an event that's pointed out 30 times in the Old Testament. So I figure, hey, the Holy Spirit's pointed out 30 times, I guess I better include it. Okay, well, that's all. We kind of extended our time tonight. So. <laughs>